Hello! On Farmgate today, prompted by a recent blog by Tara Garnett from FCRN, the Food and Climate Research Network, I'm asking the question, has vegan become a dirty word? It seems pretty crazy that we've reached the stage where this question is even formulated, let alone asked. But with food having become central to the mission to avert the global climate crisis, it seems that people's personal choices about what they eat have become a central battleground. Do you think that you're a better person because you're a vegan? Or because you only eat meat from grass-fed livestock? Or perhaps because you refuse to eat anything that's been produced further than 20 miles away? Well, today I'm going to chew the fat, or suck the soya curd if you prefer, with two people who care passionately about the impacts of the food they eat. Later in the programme I'll speak to Caroline Grindrod, a regenerative meat producer from Cumbria. But first of all, let's hear from Dr Tara Garnett from FCRN. And following on from her blog, I asked her, has vegan become a dirty word? I don't think we're at a stage where vegan is a dirty word within the kind of public consciousness. But within some within the environmental community, I do sense this dis-ease with the word because in their minds it has become aligned with a particular worldview which represents everything that they reject. And I think that worldview is seen as big business, alienation from the natural world, uh, processed food, food without soul, as it were. And I think I think that was what I was trying to explore in my blog, because I think I think that's a very caricatured position of veganism, because it in itself is is a much more complex concept and people eat for lots and lots of very complex reasons. I think there is some it, it has become that the, the lifestyle of veganism has become uh, problematic for some environmentalists today. And, and, and you say that, uh, and yet many um, eco-omnivores, if you like, and green vegans, um, I think they kind of have the same goals, really. You know, we're, uh, we're, we're, trying, we're trying to solve environmental problems. So, so I, I wonder, and I think you're quite right, that there is uh, a competition of ideas, um, you know, that's taking place, which can be quite combative. And wh- why do you think that is? Why is it combative? So I think it's really, really complex. Now, I think one of the, what it hinges on to an extent is how we see our relationship with the natural world. And that's the first thing. And I think the second thing is that what is the counterfactual that people fear? And to to explain that, what what I think some of the Veganism posits itself that that the kind of what it sees as the opposite of veganism is perhaps a world in which everyone carries on meeting, eating meat much as we do today, much as trends suggest we're doing more of, which is rising consumption of uh, large quantities of industrially produced, intensively produced food. And um, I, I don't think anybody would disagree within the environmental movement, yes. at least, that that model simply isn't, is, isn't, isn't viable. It, yes. Business so, as usual so, isn't an option. So they, the, their view is, I think, that this is, this is the future that they fear and therefore veganism represents a better way forward. I I think there's another view. 
I think there are there are also people, perhaps not within the the very close knit environmental community, but who see this rising animal product uh, animal consumption, this rising demand for animal consumption, and say, well, look, we can't actually do anything about this demand because, like, the laws of supply and demand are fixed by God, and therefore we need to give people what they wouldn't want in the least damaging way possible. And for them, actually, intensive production looks like the least bad way forward. So, so there is that environmental position, and I would call that quite the kind of mainstream green light position. Then you go back to the sort of eco-omnivores who, who perhaps are more optimistic about humanity, who perhaps feel that actually we can make it work we can integrate ourselves with the natural world, that we are not vermin on the face of this earth, and that actually we can, and and they have a very strong sense that of history, and that this is what humans have done, and therefore the past is an indication of the future, plus probably quite a strong emphasis on ideas about working with nature and nature being a guide. And um, I think that's interesting to, to sort of get, get into that, because I think you, you've brought up nature, you know, a couple of times. And um, and it's this idea of the natural world that seems to me to be quite important, that if we if we think about Britain, obviously, at a global level, it's, it's slightly different because there are still wildernesses that, you know, are relatively untouched by human beings. But in Britain, is there such a thing as a natural environment? No, um, I mean, so so just a couple of things here, because I think what we'll come back to is also um, perhaps there's a difference in, in the view to which we are connected with the rest of the world, as opposed to the extent to which we are, as Britain, an island and therefore responsible for our own food production and consumption. But but I'll leave that for a moment. So is, is there any nature in Britain? No, but there are greater natures and lesser natures. So, you know, at, at one level, you could say everything is cultural now, because even in the most remote corners of the Amazon rainforest, you can tra- see traces of human uh, kind of modification. But, but that's, you know, you can take that argument so far too far. I mean, there is a difference between a car park and the Amazon rainforest. So, you know, there's culture and culture. Uh, When it comes to Britain, yes, of course, we have shaped the, the landscape, but there are wilder and less wild parts of it. So I think I think it is a question, what kind of landscape do we want to revalue? But I think this is where it links also with with the fact that we are part of a global community. It's a very, very simplistic notion to suggest that we adopt this push model that we in the UK have to feed the world, the starving masses, etc. Because we know, we know very well that hunger arises from lack of access and affordability and lack of agency rather than a lack of food per se. But at the same time, I think we do have to bear the global context in mind. And this is why I personally come back to the point of view that I cannot see a world where we meet some of the environmental challenges that we face, biodiversity loss and climate change, without reducing 
our consumption of animal products, mm. even mm. in a country like the UK, which is good at grass. So going back to the idea of vegan and, and again, why why this becomes combative and, and why people feel, feel threatened by it, I suppose that it's perhaps part of it's because you've got sort of polar opposites, people who just carry on eating meat in the same way that they have always eaten it and don't challenge themselves and their consumption behaviours. And then people at the other extreme who have taken a very, very different set of life and dietary choices. And so I wonder how we can take heat out of this debate and if we, if there's a way of, of creating a conversation which isn't just set at those polar opposite points. Possibly. I mean, I think one of the other things that might be worth bringing into the discussion is the idea of motive. And I think people were sort of more sympathetic towards veganism in the past, they might have sort of laughed at it or thought it was eccentric or a bit extreme or whatever. But back when it was really quite hard to be vegan, there was a kind of, well, credit credit due or power to your elbows sort of uh, respect because it, you know, might not have been much fun. But now that it's easier, I think there is a strong strand of sort of hair shirt morality within the environmental movement that they don't really like the fact that it's easy and they don't like the fact that industry is catering to this increased demand and therefore making it even easier. So I think that's an important element to bear in mind because I think it also links to the whole lifestyles, life ways approach of some of the kind of eco-omnivores who are working hard on the land and struggling and trying very hard to do and be something different. That was Dr Tara Garnett from the Food and Climate Research Network. Caroline Grindrod is a regenerative hill farmer and wilderculture consultant who lives in an area of Cumbria perhaps best known for producing Beatrix Potter. She also runs a meat business called Primal Meats. Perhaps surprisingly, Caroline believes the vegetarian and vegan movements have been hugely important in terms of raising the environmental challenges associated with meat production higher up the public agenda. As a regenerative producer, Caroline advocates systems that seek to mimic the functions of nature, keeping soils covered, promoting photosynthesis, managing water, integrating trees and other flora, working with nature to oxidise methane and sequester carbon. But... I put it to her that this type of farming is far from normal in the United Kingdom. That's quite right. And I think that's where veganism and vegetarianism is highlighting that issue, is we've got some very uh, dysfunctional, in terms of natural processes, uh, dysfunctional food systems. So we've decoupled the system. We've taken what was a beautifully functioning ecosystem of all those fun, you know, climate cooling mechanisms built within it. And we've taken the animals away and put them in sheds. And then we've plowed up the land and created bare soil. And we're using fossil fuels to produce our food. So we've got a very broken system. But the answer isn't simply just not eating meat. Um, we can produce meat in a very um, uh, nature-friendly way that is encouraging all of those you know, um, hydrological functions that are helping keep the planet cool. And we can also produce plants in that way. But um, you can also buy plants that are produced from ploughed land that's using you know, energy-intensive fertilisers, uses pesticides to kill all the insects, uses herbicides to kill all the wildflowers and poisons the seas. Um, that can you know, be a plant diet. So it's really just not as simple as saying eating plants is better. 
uh, we need to start to broaden out the conversation into how does that influence and impact land use. So, so you mentioned land use there, and that that seems to me that it's it's the crux of what we're talking about. Um, and and if we're and you're a regenerative farmer, so um, mm-hmm. if you were going to um, a, a new piece of land, a new farm that you that you didn't know, um, what's the first thing you do? What's that first building block of creating a regenerative farm? So I use holistic management um, as my main kind of framework for managing landscapes. And and I think actually what's the important point is you can't just manage land and we're trying to do that. We have to manage the people um, and make it profitable. So what we always do is create a context. We talk about what do you want to do here? You know, it's all very well trying to pay farmers just to be environmental guardians, but that's not why they you know, they went into farming. So we've got to try and feed their food producers and we can do it so much better. We have to do it so much better. But ultimately, we've got to design a system that fits around the landscape that they're on, what they actually want to do, um, and, and, and you know, make sure it's producing food that's very healthy, sustainable food that's um, appropriate for the culture. So we design a system based on, you know, all of those things. Uh, and then really it's about looking at those ecological principles. So we say, okay, how can we improve this farming system so it's supporting the hydrological function, the water cycle? How can we build soil so that it's improving the mineral cycle and making sure that we are cycling those minerals so that we've got you know, potentially maybe animals in that system or just ways of making sure that the minerals are being passed through and up into our food, which is a huge issue. And then we'll be looking at you know, energy flow. How do we make sure that we've got plants in the ground growing all year round whether we're growing plants or we're growing animals, we need to be increasing photosynthesis, which is driving carbon sequestration. And community dynamics, we need a complex and resilient food web, um, which includes livestock or um, whatever we're trying to grow, but it also has to include lots of other animals and species too, if it's going to be resilient and complex. And And when you say other species, you mean nature? Nature and wildlife, you know, it has to be, in, in order to create... Um, a system which has no plagues, you know, as soon as you simplify a system down to one or two species, um, you then have to really work hard to control everything. And that costs money. We have to spray every weed. We have to, you know, use pesticides, herbicides. And then we've got, we've taken out the natural pathways of fertility, um, which happens through the microbial interactions with photosynthesis. So we've then got to bring in energy intensive fertilizers to feed the plants. The whole thing then becomes extremely expensive which is why a lot of farmers are not making any money anymore. We're dealing with the symptoms all the time in very costly ways, not just to our pocket, but usually those costly ways are very environmentally costly too. And those interventions, those interventions that you mentioned, the uh, the spraying of pesticides, etc., an awful lot of that technology, um, uh, those sort of paid for interventions, when they're invented, when they're patented, owned by a company, of course, they're promoted out into um, into into farming media and that sort of thing. But what you're talking about, it strikes me, is is more about technique than it is about technology per se. Um, and that in that regard, these techniques if they were better shared amongst the farming community, could be available for everybody and reduce costs potentially quite significantly. Absolutely. So the first things we look at with the farmers is, you know, where where's your main cost centre? So we look at uh, separating out all of the different businesses. They're usually got sheep operations and cattle operations. And, and often farmers are focused on how much money can we bring in, you know, their sales. And very rarely actually look at how much they're spending to achieve those sales. So what we look at is, you know, how much is, you know, if you actually get a farmer to sit down and say, how much is it costing me in vet med and feed costs, mineral blocks, 
for, you know, machinery costs, fossil fuels, you know, petrol, you know, all your contractor costs. What could we actually get rid of if we if we created a truly natural um, ecosystem, um, you know, an agroecological system that essentially has building its own nutrients and um, we are getting rid of those pests and diseases that are coming out from, you know, because we've imbalanced the system. You can get rid of a huge number of your costs and therefore you're just naturally more profitable. And then added to that, there's you know a lot of evidence and we're certainly finding it on the farms we're working with you can often actually increase um your production in the uk we maybe don't have such scope to increase production as some of the people in the drylands of the world are experiencing but there's still great scope to actually you know with this, the conversation so far has been very much around land sparing and the whole argument around sort of separating ourselves from nature and saying okay let's become more efficient on this agricultural land so we can give more back to nature. The problem is that that's based on models of farming that are, you know, often very good and conservation farming comes from that kind of movement and, um, you know, some of the organic farming, um, you know, often it reduces your, your productivity. But when you actually start to mimic ecosystems and use these regenerative practices, which is what we teach, we find you can actually increase productivity because you, you know, ecosystems, um, not truly pristine natural ecosystems that are functioning at the most high level um, are the most, you know, they produce the most um, food in terms of biomass in the whole world. It's way beyond what we can produce from our intensive agricultural systems. So what we need to get a lot better at is understanding how to make that work in each region with different, um, you know, contexts. So I'm struck by this um, this idea that you can actually increase the productivity. That well, actually, I, I guess we need to take a step back and just understand what and define what we mean by productivity. Um, so, are you talking about an increase in overall yield? Or are you or are you talking about an increase in um, yield relative to input? cost um, overall yield and um, reducing your input costs. So, so, so this is this is staggering because I mean you know this is the criticism, isn't it, of of yeah. of, um, of nature farming, of, of organic farming overall that it's it's great in patches and isn't it wonderful because we're you know we're helping to restore nature in these pockets of land, but we can never feed a growing uh, global population if we if we farm that way everywhere. But what you're suggesting is that is that we can do that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I believe we can. And um, I'm, I'm not, you know, this isn't big false promises. I'm very careful about this. But if, and if you just suddenly said, right, well, if you, you need to change the whole system. So often um, farmers used to ask me to come in and say, you know, how can we be more, more productive or more sustainable? But they're not willing to look at, you know, they're dairy farmers or they're a beef farmer. So, uh, and, they, and they really just wanted to tweak what they're already doing. Well, we don't do that. We look at changing the whole system to mimic an ecosystem. And when you do that, um, you definitely can be more productive. It won't look the same because you're not, you cannot compare it directly with a soy crop, you know, or a wheat crop and say, this is what we're doing is we're creating, we would, you know, potentially would be having a diversified range of outputs. So it's, it's, it's more difficult to measure, but overall your livestock numbers are likely to be able to increase. Um, and if you're an arable farmer, and that's not my specialism, so, but there are arable farmers, um, people like Gabe Brown who are using these principles and practices to the highest degree are significantly producing more, you know, and, but they're producing a range of different foods. Um, and then if you get into the conversation around, okay, well, nutrient density, should we just be comparing calories? I mean, you could easily say, okay, well, if you have this intensive production system, then maybe we could produce more calories. 
although I don't agree that's possible either. Um, but calories are meaningless. Really, what humans need is really good nutrition. So you need to be focused on what's the quality of that. And is it sustainable, you know, to that landscape? You know, we use it, we're giving a false choice, really, by saying intensive agriculture can produce more because it's producing more this year. But over a, a series of 10 years where you've, you're building in crop failures and bad years, you know, is it truly sustainable? And is it going to go beyond that? Are we going to be able to keep producing food for 50 years on that intensive system? And in my experience, that's an absolute no, because our soil carbon levels are being depleted. You know, the problems with insect pests are getting worse. Wormers are no longer working in farming. We've got huge issues that are just not going to allow us to continue in that same way. So it's a false choice. What you're trying yeah. to do is to go back to um, looking at what the root cause is rather than simply treating symptom after symptom after symptom. Yeah, completely. So in modern farming, we're doing nothing but treating symptoms. And as you quite rightly say, and that costs a huge amount of money. So if you go back to the, the root cause of nearly every problem it's in soil health so if you have gradually depleted your carbon and all of the biology all the microorganisms in your soil then you've broken down the nutritional pathway that feeds the plant and as soon as you do that you have to feed the plant with fossil fuel fossil fuel derived nutrients which are hugely problematic for lots of reasons um, and, and very, very costly to the farmer. But that plant becomes quite sick because you're not providing the massive range of nutrients that needs to be healthy and disease resistant. And we've got so used to that, we think it's normal for things to get diseases all the time. And then that plant is sick, so it needs pesticides and herbicides, and we need to kind of control everything and treat that. And then whatever is eating that plant, whether it be us or an animal, is not getting the range of nutrients it needs. So, you know, we then have to treat our animals with wormers and, and you know, all sorts of applications to try and prevent them getting sick and give them minerals that they could have got from the soil, but that's broken down. So, you know, you're then treating all of these symptoms, and that's where we get to. And, and we've become really good at trying to manage those symptoms, but ultimately what we need to do is go back right back and strip the whole system down and say how do we rebuild a, a truly um balanced ecologically you know sound system that's going to continue to produce food long term and that food is going to be incredibly healthy for everybody okay so my kids love playing with lego and it seems to me that many modern farm systems are like vast Lego castles where new wings and turrets have been built, requiring new props and stilts to be added, and the whole thing has just become astonishingly unwieldy. So what Caroline is talking about is stripping the Lego model back to basics and rebuilding the foundations from the roots up. But can you do this while the Lego castle continues to function? And if we strip away my laboured Lego metaphor, can you shift to regenerative food production while continuing to farm throughout the transition? Um, you can, and some people are extremely good at that. I think there's a period we've got a window of opportunity where it's easier um, to transition into one of these models um, if you give yourself a bit of breathing space. And how I like to work with farmers is to say, okay, you, you've got to, if you actually look at your, where your profitability is, it's very rarely in the actual production. Most farmers in this country are making very little money out of their sheep operation or their cattle operation alone when you're looking at, you know, considering those input costs. So with that in mind, and the fact that a lot of the percentage of an income comes from subsidy, and we've got a few years left where we know that's going to be the case, I think this is the time to say, right, let's strip back, uh, you know, some of this, you know, the numbers, strip back some of the complexity in your system. So often we have to create big areas of uh, rest ahead of us. So we've got areas of grass to go into. And in order to do that, if you've got lots of different 
enterprises and um, lots of different animal operations, it's really hard to, to, to create that big gap. So what we often do is try and help them simplify their operation. So, you know, how do we um, get down to sort of one, one beef operation, one sheep operation and, and not be crossing them and separating them all into little groups all the time. And, and at the same time, we need to be... Um, you know, looking at uh, getting rid of all those input costs and resetting the system so that we can actually go into, yeah, this brand new world, essentially, of, of, of managing your farm like an ecosystem. You mentioned when you were talking um, about cattle and sheep, um, can you have regenerative systems that, that don't include livestock? I think the the principle is that um, all ecosystems would, you wouldn't be separating out animals from plants that just doesn't happen in the natural system so with that in mind it it doesn't really make sense to try so if you want to have natural mineral cycling and you want the soil to be healthy and minerals to to be turned from sort of you know vegetation into back into into nutrients that can feed plants again and you want all of the complexity you need to be able to not have big booms of pests and issues with insects and all those problems i think you need a truly integrated system Well, the cockerel says that that's all we've got time for. Has vegan become a dirty word? No, or at least it shouldn't have. But there's no doubt that society needs to rediscover a little respect for the choices people make about what they eat. We won't get very far if we start judging people for eating either a nut cutlet or a beef burger. And more than that, fixating on people's diets is coming at this from entirely the wrong direction. Instead, we need to look at the land. What can each parcel of land, and the landscape around it more broadly, best produce in balance with nature? Of course, that raises more questions and more challenges, but those are subjects for other programmes. No one ever said that averting environmental catastrophe was going to be easy. Well, that's it. Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed the programme, then please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, and share our links. Farmgate is a partnership project for Farmwell and FAI Farms, and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now.